so glad that you guys are with us tonight. And for people that are attending online tonight, uh, welcome to you. Thank you so much for tuning in. It has been a journey um, here at Revive uh, for the last almost two years, actually two years in June it would be, that we actually started a little series called Life of Christ, where we had this idea, you know, what if we, (laughs) and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Have you ever had those moments you're like, you think, oh, we could do this, and then you just didn't realize how big it was. Uh, But we had this idea that what if we just taught the things that Jesus did, a chronological series through the life of Jesus Christ, the things that he said, the things he did, things he taught, uh, the people that followed him, the people that loved him, the people that did not. And you start, uh, we started even in the Old Testament. We, before he was even born, we looked at the prophecies that took place, uh, the many messianic prophecies that took place and, and prophesied about this guy um, that was going to come and be a rescuer. And that's why Jesus came. He came to be a rescuer, um, to basically bring salvation uh, to uh, all of mankind, and that would be a very eye-opening thing for a lot of people. You mean everybody? Everybody. Even those people? Yes, those people. Jesus was going to come for everyone, and so we have had an amazing almost two-year journey going through this, and it comes to an end tonight. Not that we'll stop talking about Jesus. We will never stop talking about Jesus, uh, but this series Uh, comes to a close tonight. And I'm excited because next week we're going to start a brand new series called I'm In. Um, And uh, if you want to know what you're in, uh, just come next week. And so, uh, but it's it's just good to be able to kind of wrap up tonight. And I couldn't think of a better way of doing it than the scriptures that we're going to be in uh, tonight. And so uh, thank you guys for being here. If you can, do us a favor. Um, If you are online, just uh, tell us where you're from. Tell us um, maybe even a little about, bit about yourself, but uh, have that little community time online. Uh, but again, uh, super glad that everybody's here. Will you guys pray with me, and we're just going to ask God to speak to us. Father God, thank you so much for the last oh, 20 months of being in a series of just being able to study you. And to the very best of our abilities in our study to chronologically look at the life of your son, Jesus. And so, may the things that he said before he ascended that were important to them be important to us. May it open our eyes to maybe the things that we need to change or maybe that we need to live out. So we're going to give you this time, this message, Father God, just do what you need to do. And this we ask in your name. Amen. Well, a lot of you guys know um, <clears throat> I'm not originally from Colorado. Uh, I would be one of those guys that says I got here as soon as I could. Uh, immediately after college, I came out here and was a skier in the ski industry, enjoyed that part of my life. Uh, it's, a good, it's a neat life for somebody who's single and doesn't have children, doesn't have a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> Um, but when you uh, start thinking that direction, uh, you think, well, maybe I need to, maybe I need to get a job that uh, actually does a little bit more uh, for us. Uh, but I grew up in Indiana, and Indiana, uh, there's a lot of neat things about the state. 
Um, but growing up in Indiana, one of the things I remember, I remember hearing about it. It wasn't a huge deal to me. Um, but in 1977, actually June 26, 1977, there was a concert at Market Square Arena. Market Square Arena was the basketball gym where uh, the Pacers played before they built their new arena. But on June 26, 1977, there was a concert, uh, and you wouldn't have thought this was going to be a big deal. Um, but it ended up being a fairly big deal because it would be the last concert ever performed by this individual. And, of course, I'm talking about Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley would give his final concert because a month and a half after his concert in Indianapolis, on August 16th, 1977, Elvis died in his bathroom in Graceland, uh, in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And so, you may be asking, well, what the heck does Elvis Presley have to do with the life of Christ? And, and he, I'm gonna, here's the reason. Um, Elvis has now been dead for over 44 years, and yet there have been countless sightings of the guy. I mean, everybody seems to think, hey, I think I saw Elvis. And so you would hear about these sightings, especially in the 80s and 90s. It was a big deal. Somebody said, you know what, and this is right after he died, they said, I think I spotted Elvis at the Memphis airport. Um, And somebody, there was a few people up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that said, oh, we saw Elvis. He's alive and well. He's kicking it in Kalamazoo uh, because Kalamazoo's the place to be. Um, I've been to Kalamazoo. It's okay. All right, Um, at the opening of Legoland Amusement Park in California, some people thought they saw Elvis, and uh, maybe they did. Um, There has been this long-going argument that uh, one of the extras in Home Alone in the background at the O'Hare Airport um, was Elvis Presley. And there's just been ongoing, you know, conversations of people. In fact, uh, there's been so much... Um, that has been said about it. There's been two television specials investigating the conspiracy. Uh, One was the Elvis Files, and the other one was the Elvis Conspiracy. And so I always thought to myself, with so many Elvis impersonators, how in the world do you think that you know who's Elvis and who's not? In fact, if you go back to that Legoland thing, the park actually said, yeah, we hired Elvis impersonators to commemorate the opening of the park. And so I would think that most of the people that were there that day saw who they thought was Elvis. Um, But Elvis impersonators, Elvis sightings, um, and I have to remind people, if Elvis was alive today, he would be 86 years old. And, uh, And I always thought, you know, if he did fake his death, I would have thought he would have come up with a a little bit better fake death. Dying of a heart attack on your toilet in your bathroom just doesn't have that, you know, going out as a rock star kind of thing, in my opinion. But all these sightings come up short, and apparently uh, there's a reason why. Elvis is dead. He did not resurrect, and yet the pivotal part of the Christian faith hinges on the fact that Jesus did resurrect from the dead. 
And that, folks, was always the plan. The moment sin entered the world, God had a plan to send a rescuer to redeem the world of their sin, and a resurrection was needed for that to happen. It was prophesied, prophesied in the Old Testament when David said in Psalm 1610, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Jesus, on several occasions, told them, here's what's going to happen. In Mark 8.31, which is nearly word for word recorded in Matthew 16.21 and in Luke 9.22, but Jesus, it says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, and then pay attention because it says, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Several times he says this. Three days to rise from the dead. And yet it's fascinating to me that those who did not believe Jesus actually rose from the grave initially happened to be some of the people that were closest to him. Some of those that knew him best. Some of those that actually heard his words that I will rise up on the third day. Mary thinks someone stole the body. And she is in hysterics. The disciples, they don't believe the report. They're just in hyster- uh, They're just like, wow. Um, I completely lost my sermon. Hang with me for a second. See Isaiah? It, oh, now I lost my whole screen. This is phenomenal. This is what we like right here. All right, give me just one second. I will. There we go. Oh, don't you dare. Don't you dare. All right. Oh, man. I'm so glad that Andrew's not here. (laughs) All right. I'm back, I think. So the disciples, they don't believe the report. They think that Mary's just in hysterics. They documented their disbelief. And you actually read that in Scripture, that they actually would say, yeah, didn't believe it. So they documented it. And it's like Jesus and the angels, I think when I read it, it feels like they're kind of messing with them a little bit because they would just appear at, at times when it's kind of unexpected. And so... In Mark 16, 11, it says, But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they, this is the disciples, didn't believe her. In Luke 24, 11, it says the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. And of course, a lot of you know about Thomas, which John records in his gospel, that Thomas would not believe it. And obviously, he must have been gone when Jesus appeared to them earlier But he said this, unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus would keep appearing. 
he appeared to two guys who were walking to Emmaus. And they were talking about all the things that had been happening. And as they walked and talked, Jesus himself joins the conversation and is walking along with them and talking with them. They did not recognize him as Jesus, even though they were followers of Jesus. It would be later on in that evening when they would actually sit down together for dinner. And Jesus would break the bread and and give thanks to God for it. And it says at that moment, they recognized who he was. And they're like, wow, it is you. And then Jesus is gone. He disappears. But here's the deal. And I said this last week. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. What I mean is that Jesus is either going to be a myth or a Messiah. And if he is a myth, he stays in the grave. But if he resurrects, then he is the Messiah. And the disciples go from complete disbelief to total belief. Remember in Matthew 28, 17, when they saw him, it says that they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus, which means they actually saw a man as God. They saw a man as God. They wouldn't even say the name of God. In today's day and age, it would be like them saying, you know, G slash D. And yet they are seeing Jesus and they are proclaiming him as God. They are regarding him and seeing him as God. And so these men go from being scared and hiding and in disbelief to actually seeing, communicating with, touching, and they move to a place of complete belief. And so much that they would actually forsake the rest of their lives, to share it with the world. That's fascinating. That they would believe it that much, that they would see him and they would believe in him that much, that they would say, you know what? We are sold out to this. And this is one of the leading arguments with apologetics for people to understand there is absolutely no reason that the disciples would do that if it was all a lie, if it was a myth. There's no way they would sell out the rest of their lives to do that. Eleven men challenge the authority that the crucifixion of Christ and then live out the rest of their life would be sharing a lie to the world would be just absolutely unreal. There's nothing for them to gain from that. But... What I love about what the disciples get to is they become consumed with Jesus. They become consumed with the resurrection. And their whole idea and their whole mindset, and this is actually what has been my prayer for my life, is I would get so consumed with God that everything I do would be to God be the glory. May God get the glory of everything that we do, that when God would look at our families, he would say, man, And we would say, it is for your glory, God, that we do the things that we do. 
that when we speak, it would be in such a way that God would get the glory. When things happen, like last week, and we just had amazing things happen last week, and five people get baptized, we say, okay, this is for the glory of God. Nothing else matters. Everything we say and do should give God the glory. And this is a shift for people when they truly fall in love with Jesus. It's almost like this transformation happens. This metamorphosis occurs, and it takes place where we become way more about God and His glory than we are about ours. And yet, that, I believe, is the struggle for a lot of people. I remember hearing Matt Chandler, Pastor Matt Chandler, who I love to listen to. He dressed it this way, that when described most people in the Christian church is that you don't really love God, you just love His stuff. Wow. You love all the perks and the privileges, but we have to ask ourselves, do we actually love God? Even if those things were removed. Do I love Him with everything that I have? Am I all about being to your glory, God? You be the glory, God. But embracing and experiencing the resurrection, it should change you, shouldn't it? Where you become obsessed with trying to glorify him like the disciples would eventually do. And they experience the resurrection and they then would share the truth with the known world. And if the resurrection has that kind of power, here's the other thing it does. It brings a revelation to the entire library of Scripture. The resurrection brings everything into full. So when you read the Bible and you start from the very beginning and you're reading it, you come up to the resurrection, you're like, oh, now now things make sense. A lot of these things didn't make sense, but now it does. I remember hearing Timothy Keller. uh, He used this example. He says, you only need to watch the movie The Sixth Sense twice. You'll watch it the first time, and I I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but you'll find out at the end of the movie that Bruce Willis has been dead the entire time. But that changes everything. It does. And so you'll watch it a second time, knowing that Bruce Willis has been dead the entire time, and now it brings everything into full understanding. You're like, oh, I know he's dead. You read the Bible. From the very beginning, then you get to the Gospels and you discover that Jesus died and has resurrected. It brings the entirety of God's Word with the light bulb on. And wow, now I get it. Now it makes sense. And it's what separates Christianity from all other faiths in the world. If someone asks you what is so different about Christianity, you can say boldly and with confidence that it is about Jesus Christ who resurrected from the dead. The resurrection separates Christianity from all the, other, all the others because there is no other faith base where the leading figure of that faith resurrects. They all die and stay dead, but not Jesus. So Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
He offers eternal atonement for your sins. I read this last week, but 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, says he was seen by Peter and then by the 12, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, now what? So Jesus lives this amazing life, three years of amazing ministry, does all these things, heals people, brings people back from the dead, proclaims a kingdom that is not of this world, and then he dies, they think it's over, but he resurrects. Now what? Now what? You'll notice that the Bible does not end with the resurrection, uh, or even the Gospels for that matter. It actually opens up the New Testament. There are going to be 23 books that are going to follow the Gospels. And so obviously something happens after the resurrection of Jesus that God wants us to know about. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't be in his word. And so Jesus is going to spend 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But it is what he says right before he leaves the earth that is recorded actually in all four Gospels and in Acts chapter 1 that we really want to hone in on. And I couldn't find any better way for us to bring a conclusion of this series than with this final challenge that Jesus is going to give his disciples. This is kind of like a coach's last instructions before they go out and take uh, the court or the field. And so we're going to meet with our guys. I'm going to tell you guys, here's what I want you to do, and I need you to go out and do it. But this coach has been playing on the, on the team with them for so long, and now he's not, and he's going to send them out. And it's like, wow, this is a big moment for us. But before we even get to that, there's one thing I want to remind you of. There was a few things that happened when Jesus died. One of the most significant things that happened when Jesus died is when an earthquake occurred and the temple got destroyed. And in that, the Holy of Holies, which is separated from the holy place, which had a veil that was probably two or three inches thick, tore from the top to the bottom. It's extremely significant because no longer are we in need of somebody to go to God on our behalf, only Jesus. Jesus is the one who goes to the Father. Before that, it was always the high priest. And so this is an exciting thing that we have this direct connection. And I love direct connections. I even like direct flights. I don't like layovers. I don't like anything that is like an extra, okay? So if I want to talk to you, I'm going to go to you personally and talk to you. I think that's the best thing to do. I don't want to go to somebody else and and then ask them about you. So I want to be able to go to you directly. And that's what God wants for us, is to be able to go him directly and say, here's what's going on, here's what I need. And so this is kind of a, an intense moment for the disciples, though, when Jesus is going to give them the last charge, because now he's sending them out on their own. This is kind of like when you're 16 and you get your driver's license and you do that very first solo drive without anybody else in the car. I don't know if you guys remember that 
kind of like feeling, you're like, oh man, <laughs> this is the first one. Or when somebody takes their first solo flight as a pilot, and it's exciting, but it's also a little nervous, and so now it's your turn to lead out and do everything that you have been taught. And so here's how it's recorded in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But notice it says this, But some of them did what? Doubted. Now, I think when we read that, we automatically jump to the conclusion that Jesus is right in front of them, and they are doubting that he is right in front of them, and that's actually not true. The word that is used here in the Greek is distazo, and it doesn't mean that they didn't believe. Um, It's actually used one other time in Matthew 14, 31, when Peter is walking on water and began to sink. Now, Peter had a lot of faith. In fact, he's the only one that actually got out of the boat and started walking on water. So what does this word actually imply? Because obviously, Peter had faith, but it is insufficient for the job or the task at hand. And that's the word that's being used towards some of these men, is that some of them believe, but some of them still have insufficient um, of what it's going to take. And so there's this idea that there is still room to grow. There's still room to grow. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. He actually turns towards them. He's walking towards them. He draws near to them. Even in the moments of our lives, when we are struggling, maybe when we're insufficient, He comes near to you, and he comes near to me. It says that Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and we have to stop. And the reason we have to stop is because if we don't grasp this, then you're going to miss everything else. If you do not grasp this, we will fail When he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, all supreme being, heaven and earth, everything that you could possibly imagine, Jesus Christ is over. It's master supremacy, ruler over everything. This means Jesus has received from God the authority to reign and be the ultimate authority, and this includes over you and over me over everything. So who's in charge? Jesus. Jesus is in charge. Want to know who the coach is? It's Jesus. Want to know who the CEO, COO, the king, the father, whatever title that you want to give to the person who is at the very top of the flow chart when it comes to this world and everything in it, it is Jesus. Which means this, if you don't get anything else, please grasp this, that Jesus is the authority. And if he is and you grasp that, then 
it doesn't really matter what he says after this. It doesn't. What matters is we acknowledge and recognize Jesus as the supreme being, the man in charge. There is no one else as the ultimate authority in our lives. And what matters is that we understand who is saying it and that we follow it. So the person at the top of the chain of command says this, then this is what we do. That's where a lot of people struggle. Because a lot of people will, will claim Christ as a Lord and Savior, but then they will like to pick and choose the things that they're going to follow after. The things that we like and dislike. It's like Facebook. We like this, we don't like this. And a lot of people treat God that way. But that's not embracing the resurrection, and that's not embracing Jesus as the ultimate authority in our lives. So Jesus could basically say, hey, stand on your head. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense, but you are God. I will stand on my head. Hop on one leg. Okay. Jump out of a window. I'm going to trust you. Catch me. Wear red on Sunday. Don't know why. Recognize Die Hard as a Christmas movie. I get it. We're going to do that because Jesus said so. He didn't. That would be sacrilegious. But the idea is this. Whatever comes next... It is what we are to do because the instructions are coming from the very top. And it's so important for us to understand that he is the top. There is no other. He's the ultimate authority. But here's what he does say. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we could do a whole sermon series on this passage alone. In fact, I think we have, so you can look it up. But there is one main verb here, and it's imperative, and that is to make disciples. It has three supporting verbs. And the three supporting verbs are go, baptize, and teach. And so the idea is we are going to go. To do what? To make disciples. And often people will be like, where do I need to go? Where should I go? Well, should I go from the bedroom to the living room? Should I go you know, down the street, maybe to the neighbor's house? Go to the store? Go into the city? Should I go to another state? Should I go to another country? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Just go. This means you are not not going. You have to go out. And so the idea is, it starts from going to the bedroom, to the living room, because you have people in your home that need to hear Jesus through you. There are neighbors that you have that need to hear about Jesus through you. There are people at the grocery store that you go to that need to hear about Jesus and see it through you. There are people in the inner city, Denver, here in Loveland, Fort Collins, that need to hear about Jesus and see Jesus through you. Do you need to go to another state? I don't know. If God calls you to, yes. 
Maybe there's an opportunity to go to an Indian reservation or inner city LA and go to Skid Row. I don't know. But the idea is that we do not stay. We are in a constant mode of going. And so where's God going to call you to go? I was in a life group one time, and it was extremely frustrating for me because most of the people in the life group were waiting for God to give them this huge calling to go into a third world developing country because they felt like that's what you know, needed to happen. And they were waiting for that calling, and they would wait. And I got so frustrated, and Sarah did too. We're like, why don't we start going here first and start doing what God asks us to do? And if God calls us to go to a third world developing country, maybe he'll do that. But I'm not going to sit around and wait because there are things that we can do here. And as a church, that's exactly what we should do. And I cannot wait till Revive takes a mission trip, maybe somewhere nationally, maybe it is uh, overseas, maybe it is down in Central America. I don't know where it is, but I can't wait to do that. But until then, we're going to do what he's called us to do here, which is be in our community and be proclaiming him and reaching people far from God. The second and third verbs in this process of making disciples are baptizing and teaching. We celebrated five people getting baptized last week at Revive. Um, And then another person I found out on Facebook gave their life to Jesus too. And I was like, that is amazing. Um, How cool is that? But baptism is so important. We had three at the end of the service and then two after the service was over when people were eating. The word baptism comes from a word called baptismo, and the idea is that you would actually plunge or dip or submerge garments into a solution so that when it came out, it would be completely different. And so Jesus was basically saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to immerse yourselves into me. I want you to baptize yourselves into me. It is actually the very first opportunity that we have as believers in Christ to be obedient to him through baptism. And so usually the person doing the baptizing will say something in the regards of, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they'll just say, I'm baptizing you in the name of Jesus. Uh, Here's the deal. (laughs) The words that are used are not that important. What is important is you understand what you are doing. I love the way Mark Moore says this. Uh, Mark uh, used to be a professor at Ozark Christian College. I know that Megan and Andrew had classes with him, I believe. Um, Mark is now on staff at a church down in Arizona. Mark wrote the book, um, Chronological Life of Christ. I think it was a, a, a class that he offered, but he wrote a book, and it's what we've used to go through this. But Mark says this, he says, the words that we say when we immerse someone are not what is important. What does matter is that a person puts their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they die to themselves and are raised together with Christ. Baptism works because of the power and the authority of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins and bring us into his kingdom. It's a life change. 
it's 100% different. You know, when we get married, we put on rings, and we basically tell people that we've made promises that our life from here on out is committed to this person. When we get baptized, it shows the world that we are going to basically immerse ourselves into him forever. This idea of dying to yourself, being raised up into him, is so amazing. The last verb here in the disciple-making process is teaching. And here's the mistake that so many Christians will make. They will say, oh, that's my pastor's job. My pastor's job to teach, my job is just maybe to get you in front of my pastor. Don't get me wrong, I love learning throughout the week and then teaching you what God has taught me. But the question is, who are you teaching? We are all called to teach what God is teaching you. This is one of the reasons that I love like our Monday night life group that we have in our home is that I get to learn from other people. And they share with me what they've learned out throughout the week. And I just, I eat that stuff up. I love it. And I'll share with them what God has taught me. And so they can continue to learn from me. We learn from one another. But at some point in time, we have to do what? We have to go. So a life of Christ is a constant flow of growing and going. And so the question becomes, how are you growing and where are you going? Who are you baptizing? I I love this last week when the baptisms were going on. Five baptisms, I did two. In fact, of all the baptisms we've had in the history of this church, I baptized less than 50%. I love that. It means other people are doing what God has called them to do. And so we have to ask, who are we baptizing? And are you living your life on mission? When we read this passage of Scripture, folks, we have to ask ourselves, are we living our life on mission, on the Great Commission? And this is the living of a life on mission. It is making disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching, and it never stops. It's a continual thing until you're able to take your last breath and Jesus calls you home. But here's what I want to do. This is what we're going to end with. Is kind of hit the pause button on the going and baptizing and teaching and just simply come to this idea of a more important question. Is Jesus the supreme authority in your life? Because I believe if we can answer that question, and we can live it out, it'll be a little bit easier when we understand him as the ultimate authority in our lives. That's where I want to grow. That's where I want God to grow in you, is you understanding who the authority is in your life. Because if it's not God, guess who it is? It's you. 
If God is not the supreme authority in your life, if Jesus is not the supreme authority in your life, then you are. You have become your own Lord, your own God. And I'll never forget Francis Chan one time saying, that's what it looks like to worship Satan. Is when you start to worship yourself and you are the authority over your life. So maybe, just maybe, if we can grasp that all authority has been given to him, then now we can start living it out. We recognize that it's his. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather, to be able to just dig into your word. And as we kind of put a lid on this series, I pray that it won't be something that we just read and don't follow, but we will absolutely look at it as transforming our lives where we invite you into every single part of our beings, that we will be a church that goes into the world, goes into Loveland and goes into our surrounding areas that we will go wherever you call us to go, to our neighbors, maybe for some of us, Father God, it's just going into the living room to have a conversation with our children or our spouse or even our parents. It would be all about baptizing and teaching, disciple-making. Help us to do that. We love you. We remember the sacrifice that you made now through your communion tonight. And this we ask in your name.